Uh, we're going to be looking at 14 verses 20 to 25 here this morning, but if you wanted a little heads up about where you need to kind of put your finger and have yourself ready to go, Isaiah chapter 28 is a, a spot maybe to find in advance and just stick your finger or your bulletin in there, but we're going to be looking at this set of verses in 1 Corinthians 14, and in some ways, uh, kind of kind of shutting down the conversation about spiritual gifts and they're going to show up a little bit next week but Paul's instruction for the church uh, it takes it away from specific instruction about spiritual gifts into more just the the order and and how the gathering is to be orderly and so they're they're like I said it, it involves gifts but it's not just about gifts and um, we have this morning Paul identifying some further information regarding what should be true about the gathering when we get together. And like I said last week, if you're here with us, I, I think the way to understand chapter 14 is to see that Paul wants the gathering of God's people to be characterized by understanding and comprehension. That when we gather, there's understanding that takes place in our midst. That we can comprehend what it is that we are doing, what it is that we are thinking, what it is that we are seeing. And that we don't check our minds out at the door. That God certainly wants to engage in our spirits, the immaterial part of us, our soul, our spirit. But we don't check our minds out at the door to do that. And we don't set aside thought for what could end up being an emotionalism or an experientialism. And so we got to be real careful there. And as Paul walks through just how tongues... The gift of tongues and yet these mysterious utterances that were a part of the church as well. I think he gives some real clear indications about what it is he wants to have characterized the gathering. And so let's just walk through how we've defined these things over the last couple weeks. Just trying to make sense of what Paul says in the text. Because he uses this term, a tongue. And does so and gives definition in chapter 14 about what it is. And he says that the one who speaks in a tongue speaks to God. Nobody else understands because they speak mysteries and that individual is built up. And he then contrasts that with tongues. Now he doesn't give us a definition of tongues in chapter 14 as he does a tongue, but we can see from Acts 2, where we spent time last Sunday, Luke gives us a clear definition of what tongues are, and I think Paul's illustrations and analogies in chapter 14 certainly support that, but now you can see just the distinction and differences between these two. The spiritual gift of tongues is actually the speaking to people. That's distinguished from just speaking to God. The spiritual gift of tongues can be understood by others because you're speaking in a known language that would be unknown to you. And the result of that is the body is built up. And so it's completely distinct on, each four, on all four of those levels 
from what Paul talks about when he speaks of mysterious utterances, non-intelligible speech, and his emphasis, and his encouragement, and his counsel, and his command is that the church pursue what is understandable, what is comprehensible, and he begins to wrap up and summarize this instruction. But as I said earlier, in some ways it's for us the closing down of just the conversation of spiritual gifts specifically. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to certainly understand verses 20 to 25, but I want us to think a little bit more about how we apply some of the things that we've thought about in regards to spiritual gifts as a whole, and certainly what Paul commands us to do and think about in these passages, and I think they're quite connected, and Lord willing, we'll see that. So, let's read the text, then we'll pray, and we'll hop in and try to understand it a little further. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers." If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Well, God, we desperately want your presence and the acknowledgement that you are among us to be what is known of us. And God, we ask that you would help us understand your word. Help us to comprehend it. Help us to see it, have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that listen. God, we pray that you would just meet with us in a special way now, that you would help us to understand what you've written. God, we pray that you would just give us clarity about what these things and even more in general gifts look like and what you desire to be true of us and what you've what you've designed and composed and arranged to take place and pray this in the good name of Jesus amen Well, in verse 20, Paul says, brothers, it's just a family way of talking about siblings, and he's addressing brothers and sisters, and he's saying, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, 
be mature. And what he's doing and how this connects to verse 19, the verse right before it, is he's just finished saying, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue or 10,000 words that could not be understood. And so again, we're back to just where we begin is understanding, comprehension. It's the, it should be what characterizes what happens when we gather. Not that we have to have a rational explanation for everything, that it has to make sense in our finite minds, but it's that we don't check our minds out at the door. And so Paul's saying, look, if the options are to say five words that can be understood, or a myriad, or for us it would be a little bit more comparable to a billion or quadrillion, or actually this last week learned a new term, nonillion, which is ten followed by twenty-nine zeros, um, it, we're going to take the five words. Because it doesn't matter how many words you have if they can't be understood. And so be mature in your thinking. Don't think like children. Be infants and evil, but in your thinking, be mature. That word there that begins where he says that the word be, it's the verb. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. That word be is this idea of you and I doing something. And it's written in such a way that he's talking about us being acted on. Now let's just think through that, because it's, it's, it's a passive verb, and we've, we've thought about these things before, but the, the command is to not let ourselves be influenced to think like children. So the idea is, is that there, there's, there's some external influence perhaps pressuring us or leading us to think along the lines of immaturity or childishness. If we just place this in the context of what had happened and has been happening in the city of Corinth, as Paul writes this letter to them, they were, they were deeply influenced by the world. Deeply influenced by the world's wisdom, by how the world judged pedigree, how the world acknowledged what leaders should be followed or what leaders should not be followed. And Paul spends the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians saying, look, the, the kingdom is completely backwards. To how you guys are unpacking this. But they were also deeply influenced by the different religious and idol temples and cults that were a part of their city. And in chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, even to chapter 11, he is giving them instruction to how they're to engage their world in, which is a world with, with idols and temples to idols. But to do so in a way that's mature and not childish. And to not let those influences pressure them and allow them or force them to think on the scriptures. Or think about the actions of the Holy Spirit in the ways that these idol worshipers would. And he begins in chapter 12 just addressing that. For no one in the Spirit says that Jesus is accursed. And no one without the Spirit is going to be able to say Jesus is Lord. He first addresses what, what eventually ends up being a pretty major theme through 12, 13, and 14. The issue of speech. What is said. 
how it is said. And we've talked about over the last couple weeks that I think the major issue regarding gifts that this church struggled with was the gift of these mysterious utterances or the, the action or presence of these mysterious utterances. And Paul is seeking to give correction to their misunderstanding, to their childish thinking, all the while not throwing the baby out with the bathwater and not, not just concluding, don't ever have a focus there, but the focus is on known languages unknown to the speaker. And so his command is to not let these external influences pressure us. Do not be children in your thinking, be infants and in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Let's just think for a minute, how do children think? Well, oftentimes they don't. They're driven by impulses. They're driven by emotions. They're driven by desires, which for a child, generally speaking, are almost always selfish. And part of the process of raising them is to help them acknowledge selfishness and navigate through it. And so it's no longer, give me my toy back, but you can share my toy, right? And that's, that's just part of the basics of parenting, is just acknowledging that your kid is going to be naturally disposed to think of himself or herself first, and be driven by impulses, emotions, and desires to that end. Our thinking is to not be like children, just led by our impulses or our emotions or our desires. We're to be mature in our thinking, to be led by the scriptures, we're to be led by and guided by God's word. That's should be, should be communicated in ways that's understandable as the, the Holy Spirit can unpack that and help us make sense of it and how it applies in our lives. One scholar said this, it's good to be childlike when it comes to innocence. So we're to be like children in the midst or in relationship to evil. But when it comes to critical thinking skills... Those are needed for mature Christian living and the health of the church. Here's what I think Paul's saying in the contrast between 19 and 20. Not the contrast, the continuance. That the desire for 10,000 words that can't be understood. It's a spectacular event, if we're honest with each other. But the desire for those over the five words that could be understood is immature. That if given the option, like him, as their father, as he told them in chapter 4, to imitate him as their father, they are to desire the five words that can be understood as opposed to however many words that may not be understandable regardless of how spectacular that might be, to clamor for that is an expression of immaturity. Because what's mature is going to come through the understandable, the comprehensible. Now what Paul does from there in verse 21 
as he unpacks, which quite honestly, and I'll just, just kind of acknowledge it before you, is probably the most controversial part of this entire conversation about tongues. But what he does in quoting Isaiah 28 is he, he, he puts... He puts the the spectacular, non-understandable experience in a place that makes and should make us really uncomfortable. We're going to go to Isaiah 28, and I think we're going to see what he has to say there. But Paul quotes that and just says, in the law it's written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. I will contend that Paul's statement, tongues are a sign, as he's going to express them in both a negative sense and a positive sense. We're going to see the negative in Isaiah 28. I think we can see the positive just as we think through Acts 2, as we think through the gift of tongues that Paul talks about the church being given to build up. But if you're at Acts or you're, if you're in Isaiah 28, what I want to do is just kind of give you the highlights. We're not going to unpack this in depth, but I want to give you the highlights because what Paul does in quoting this text is significant. Because he's explaining what should be concluded if you gather together and there's not understanding for what's been said. And his explanation should make us really, really uncomfortable. In the beginning of Acts 28, Isaiah begins, I'm sorry, I said Acts 28. Isaiah 28, Isaiah begins, ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, this Entire chapter is an oracle against the rulers of Israel, God's covenant people, and the people themselves. And he begins first by addressing the kings, the proud crown. He does so again in verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Go to verse 7 now. He's going to then include in that the priests and the prophets. And if you remember at all what we've talked about in the past, there, there were three main offices in the nation of Israel, prophet, priest, and king. Isaiah's included all of them in this oracle. And in verse 7 says, they reel with wine. They stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Do you get the picture? It's, it's kind of a not great one to think about. But the very people that should have been leading God's covenant people in obedience and faithfulness to him were finding themselves unable to even stand. And in Acts, or Isaiah, I keep saying Acts, in Isaiah 6, just after what Justin read earlier, God gives Isaiah this call to preaching. Hey, you're going to go preach to this people. And Isaiah's like, great, send me, I'll do it. 
God said, here's what you're going to say. And he goes, oh, that sounds like a hard message. How long do I have to say that? And God's reply was, until 90% of the people leave. Think about that as a church growth strategy. Hey, just be faithful until 9 out of 10 people no longer show up. That's exactly what Isaiah was called to do. Because these were the leaders leading God's people. They weren't leading God's people in faithfulness to what God had given in them and instructed them. And here they even criticize Isaiah's ministry. And so you see that in verses 9 and 10. There's some quotations there. And what's believed is that Isaiah's writing down the criticism that he's heard of his own sermons. To whom will he teach knowledge, the people or the rulers might say. And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast, for it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. The paraphrase of that is, Isaiah, your message is too simple. It hasn't wowed us. You're talking to us like we're kindergartners. All you're focused on is this precept upon precept. All you want to focus on is just what God's word has to say and what God has instructed us in his word to say. And you just, you just want to keep building on that. And we're ready to move beyond that. Like we don't need those things anymore. We want to go experience freedom. Isaiah, we don't need line upon line. We don't need here or there, here a little, there a little. It's actually believed by some commentators. That it, there's no way to know for sure. But the very words that Isaiah uses here, precept and line and there a little, here a little, that when you vocalize that Hebrew, so by that I just mean when, when you read it in Hebrew, that it actually sounds like the, the, the coos and the gagas and the goo-goos of a child. That's part of this way that he was writing of their criticism. So Isaiah is given this message. He's given this command to go preach, and the people criticize him as not having something that wows them. It's just too simple. You really mean that God just wants us to believe what he wrote in his word and do it? We don't need that. But then notice what happens in verse 11. God's now going to speak. For by the people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. To whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. This is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them as precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, but notice the difference now that they may go, fall backward, be broken, ensnared, and taken. What Isaiah is prophesying and what he is reporting to the people on behalf of the Lord for is that the Assyrian army is going to come. 
And they're going to come and they're going to invade the nation and they're going to take the people captive and they're going to be speaking things that can't be understood because the Israelites just didn't speak the language of the Assyrians. And those Assyrian invaders and capturers are coming on behalf of the Lord to judge his people who ignored what he had said to them in plain words that could be understood. Maybe a modern day paraphrase is just the Lord saying, okay, you guys want to ignore what I've said in your language, in ways that you can understand, in ways that aren't complicated and take a high learning degrees to unpack and understand? You want to ignore all of that? All right, just, I'm going to come and I'm going to speak to you and you're not going to have a clue what's going on. And you're going to be taken captive and you're going to fall backward and you're going to be taken and you're going to be broken and you're going to be snared. And you know what? The whole time that's happening... The very criticism you gave to Isaiah is what I'm going to accomplish. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And so Paul, in quoting this passage and in saying tongues are a sign for not for believers but for unbelievers, he first identifies them as a negative sign. It's a sign of judgment. That if the church gathers and there's no understanding that takes place in its gathering, those people that are gathered together should beware that they may be sliding very quickly towards the error of the Israelites that ignored the understandable and the comprehensible and rather suffered the judgment of God as he brought in things they could not understand. One scholar says this, the citation of Isaiah makes it clear that tongues are not a saving sign, but a sign of retribution. That when God blesses, he reveals in ways we can understand. But the lack of understanding actually reveals judgment. Tongues, these known languages that are unknown to the speaker, they have their place. They're gifts, but their scope is limited and their focus is specific. And, and here's, where, here's where I think we engage in this. Because I, I don't think we're in danger as such, and I don't want to be presumptuous, but I don't think we're in danger as such of having uninterpreted tongues in our midst. Like, I just don't see that as something like next week we're going to not really, or maybe we'll let's just say two weeks from now when we do the prayer and praise thing. We're not kind of, we're not real sure what's going to happen and like we're just going to come and like it's just chaos. Like, I, I just don't think we're leaning that direction. Like, I don't think the elders would stand for it. And if I have breath in my lungs, I'm certainly going to do everything I can to not stand for it. So I just don't think we're leaning in that direction. But if we allow ourselves to just think through this in the, con- the greater context of 1 Corinthians, especially 12, 13, and 14, this church was chasing spectacular experiences at the sake of the simple and the understandable. And I think we can be in danger there. I think we can be in danger 
there that we can set aside the clear and the understandable for what we might believe is better because it's experiential. And I'll go as far to say pseudo-transcendent. That it has a look about it that says this is of God, but nothing is further from the truth. Or it's of God in judgment, not in blessing. See, regardless of how spectacular it would be for all of us to show up in two weeks or even next week and just speak in all these languages that we can't understand, it wouldn't benefit any of us. And we all speak English. There's no reason for us to even pursue it. But it would be an indication of judgment on us, revealing to us that we were not believers. It's a negative sign in that sense. That in the gathering, where the emphasis has been placed on what cannot be understood, it is a sign of God's judgment indicating you're not a part of me. Tongues, however, on, a, on the balanced side of that is a sign for unbelievers in that, like Acts 2, the Holy Spirit will use the speaking of known languages to communicate the mighty works of God in ways that there would be a language barrier otherwise. But Paul wants the church, this gathering, to focus on prophecy. Because that's for believers. And that's what he says. Prophecy is for, or not for unbelievers, but for believers. The words is a sign isn't actually in the Greek there as Paul wrote. So rather than focus on what can't be understood, focus on what can be understood. Because that's for you. If we even went back to verse 4, excuse me, uh, it's going to be verse 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. It's for you because you can understand it. And as we tried to give definition to these things, the, the, the gift of prophecy as, as, as outlined throughout the New Testament and as we see just kind of worked itself out is the, is the proclaiming and explaining of God's word. Sometimes there's going to be spontaneous insights that come, but those are going to be geared around and for the explanation and proclamation of God's word. And so in verses 23, 24, and 25, essentially what Paul says is, I just want you to play out the scenarios. He's already given clear indication of how uninterpreted tongues and or mysterious utterances in the gathering affect the church. And they don't have any effect. He's already given clear understanding about what prophecy does in the church. And it deeply affects and profoundly affects the church. But now he's just saying, I want you to think about the experiences or those scenarios from the perspective of the unbeliever. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, that's known languages unknown to the speaker. And outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your mind? See, even here, he's just acknowledging, look, the languages may be real, but if there's no understanding, 
which would be the implication of every one of us speaking that nobody's interpreting, nobody's actually unpacking, because everybody's just speaking, the unbelievers would say, are you not out of your minds? The outsider unbeliever will criticize because of the chaos. Think back to what he said in chapter 7 about husbands and wives where there is a scenario there where there's one spouse who's a believer and one spouse who's not. Just, just put, put that couple into this scene for a moment. That finally the husband decides he's coming to church with his wife who's a believer, who's been asking and begging him to come. And he shows up and he can't understand a word that's being said. And he goes, sweetie, you're part of a bunch of crazy people. I found myself thinking, as we think about our worship and evaluate that, and even this scenario, is this scenario of gathered worshipers more like the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel trying to get his attention? Or is it like Elijah who's just going to speak? Call fire down from heaven because he knows God's listening. And he doesn't have to try to manufacture experiences to get God's attention. He can just approach him and say, hey, I'm here. See, Paul criticizes the Corinthians for placing spectacular experiences above the proclamation and exclamation of God's word. See, they were chasing these mysterious utterances or these untranslated known languages above speech that could be understood and comprehended. And they were concluding that there was a sense of transcendence there because it couldn't be explained and it wowed them. And yet in their immaturity, they missed the point that it's the simple and the understandable that not only builds up the church, but it's used by the Holy Spirit to convict the hearts of unbelievers. Paul began this letter speaking to these things. When they were criticizing his ministry of speaking to them as just kind of being that, just unimpressive when you measured it up against what the world would have or these itinerant traveling, not pastors, speakers that would run around these areas. I mean, think of like snake oil salesman, the music man. I mean, that kind of idea here. He's just, look, I just decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they were criticizing him for it. And he goes, no, that's just, I just came with that message. And the, the foolishness of the cross is actually wisdom and power for those who are being saved. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom as the world would define them. But in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Now please do not define power there as miraculous Stuff happening, spectacular, because in the singular, Paul clearly says and indicates that this power he's talking about is the power of the dead becoming alive. It's the power of salvation. What he's saying is, I didn't want you impressed with me, I wanted you impressed with God as he took the heathen and made him a saint 
And when you think back on this, it's not that, oh, he had a really great sermon. It's not he told us about Jesus, and we believed in Jesus, and Jesus transformed that dude's life, and Jesus transformed my life. See, it's the simple, it's the understandable. It's just the proclamation and explanation of God's word that's going to convict the hearts of unbelievers. And then he says in verses 24 and 25, play out the scenario from the perspective of an unbeliever regarding prophecy. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and cowled to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So if all of us, in contrast to speaking in languages that nobody has a clue what's being said, what we're doing is just proclaiming and explaining the word of God, you play that one forward, the unbeliever who enters, that unbelieving husband who finally decides to come to wife with, or to church with his wife, he goes, oh my goodness, this God is actually really among you. Because God's word has done what God's word tells us it will do as we are faithful in obeying it. And here's what I mean by that. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. We're not going to unpack the difference in pronouns there. But notice the writer of Hebrews just went from the word of God to the person of God and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. That word hidden there at the end, that's the opposite of the word disclosed that Paul writes about. You want to see God move in your midst? You don't have to be real fancy about this Corinthian church. You just have to be obedient. Put your focus and attention on God's word. Figure out how to proclaim and explain God's word with everything you do. And then you go and watch God do what only he can do. So that when you step back and view these things, you go, oh my goodness, God has met us because he has transformed lives. And his word is what his word says that it is. See, the unbeliever comes in and we are proclaiming and explaining God's word. We get the opportunity to say, God loves you, and he cares about you, and he wants you to know him, and he wants you to understand who he is, and he wants you to trust him with his life, and those are all words that can be understood. And it's what that unbeliever desperately needs. They don't need language they can't understand. They need somebody to say, let me tell you about this Jesus. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Let me tell you what he can do for you. So one of the questions is just, will, will we be people devoted to the scriptures and making disciples? Or are we going to be people that, that lean towards and maybe error in chasing spectacular experiences? Will we be people who spend time with Jesus and in God's word, not just for ourselves, but for the building up of others? Will we gather together, having spent time preparing ourselves to build up others, asking, even specifically asking God to use us in that way? Because 
while there may be a gift of New Testament prophecy that God gives, that Paul outlines in chapter 12, he specifically says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. There may be some that are gifted to proclaim and explain God's word in ways that others are not gifted, and yet all of us are commanded to proclaim and explain God's word. This is no different than there may be some gifted with evangelism, but all of us are on the hook to evangelize. So when we come together, is this even on our radar? Is this even something we're focused on and just even wondering about? Have we spent any time this past week thinking about how when we come, we can build up? Because it's not just the Sunday school teacher that prepares to get here on Sunday morning. It's not just the preacher's job to prepare for Sunday morning. It's all of our jobs. Because you've been gifted to build up the body and obey this call that you've been given to build up the body. And you're spending any time in the week thinking about and praying about and asking God to prepare you to be that encouragement and that consolation and that, that upbuilding presence that someone needs because you're here with them. Think about it this way. If it's really more of a blessing to give than to receive, why do we functionally approach and evaluate our time together? As if the opposite's true. I'm tying together some thoughts that we've thought through over the last several weeks. And I've told you, I struggle with this question with my kids. One of the first things that wants to come out of my mouth when we get home from Sunday morning is, did you have fun today? And that's the, that's the absolute worst question to ask first. Because you know what that question is? It's a question that just puts the focus on them. Completely undercuts what God wants to do in and through them where the focus should be on others. So if you ever found yourself just kind of evaluating and critiquing what we do, be careful. It's not to say that we're not above evaluation and and the the right critique. It's got to be the right critique you got to ask yourself, is my approach, did I come this morning to give or did I come to take? Because you weren't gifted to take. You were gifted to give. I think there's probably people in our church that want more of God. A desire to not have boring or route or expectable, just kind of the ho-hum. They want a, a, a vibrancy in their relationship with Jesus and his body. And to that, I would say yes and amen. But here's where I think we need to be careful. If we go and chase the spectacular and ignore the very ways that God has indicated that building happens. We may find experiences, but I'm not sure we have found the Spirit. What you're looking for and wanting something more is actually found through giving. 
It's found through the building up of the body. It's found through using your gifts. And so rather than chasing places to receive, you and I are called to look for places to give. Rather than chasing God moments for yourself, we're to be used of the Holy Spirit for God moments in the lives of other people. And it's this backwards reality that we've seen time and time again. We thought about it last week. The humble will be exalted. The last will be first. It's better to give than to receive. In chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, look, the secret to marriage is not to focus on yourself. Don't, don't worry about your own needs. Worry about their needs. Be all in in meeting their needs. At the communion table, don't focus on your own hunger. Focus on the body. In the church, when we gather, don't come worried about who's going to come and meet your needs. Come asking yourself and the Lord how you can be used of him to meet the needs of other people. You want more vibrancy in your relationship with the Lord? Yes and amen. I want that as well. But let's not ignore the way that he has designed that to come about. So just this past week, I was talking with a lady in our church who uh, was, was doing her personal time with the Lord and then had met with somebody and said, you know what? What I just read a couple hours ago, I think I read for you. Let me share this with you. When I see God show up, have an attitude and a perspective that says, I want to be a giver first and not a taker. I shared with you that story of the waitress in Pizza Hut and giving her a couple hundred bucks. What I didn't share was that that, that was, in, in some ways, the culmination of two years of sitting at her table every Tuesday and praying for her with those men and asking ourselves and her, how can we love you? How can we support you? How can we be there? And then, and then there was this moment where, like, I, I'm not sure why I took the money out of the bank, but it was there in my wallet, and it was a need that she had. And it was like, I just think God wants you to have this. But it came about over weeks of trying to not be a taker, but a giver. I think there's people in our church who may never have stopped to seriously consider that God wants you to use, God wants to use you. See, preparing to be here on Sunday mornings isn't just a Sunday school teacher's job. It's not just my job. What you were made for and called for and gifted for is the building up of the body, not watching the paid professionals go to work or the unpaid professionals. And I found myself this week thinking about, like, how cool would it be if our church had a prayer team? How cool would it be if, like, after the service, we had a couple people, like, over here, and, like, you just knew that if you needed prayer, you could go, and they would pray for you. And, like, how awesome would that be? And we did some of that on that Friday night a couple weeks ago, and it was great. And I was, like, how awesome would that be if we just had that kind of built into what we, what we did? And then I found myself thinking, but you know what? As great as that would be, that might lead some of us to conclude, I'm off the hook because somebody else covering it. I don't have to be the one to pray because they can go up and meet with the prayer team. Because we got somebody to encourage them and it doesn't need to be me because there's people up there waiting to do so. But God's called you to build up. He's gifted you to build up. 
He's commanded you earnestly desire that you might be able to proclaim and explain his word when we gather together. So what if our lives were actively prioritized? Or what if our, in our lives we actively prioritized relationships over church programs? We told you that was a big question several months ago. How do we do that as a church? How do we kind of structure things that allows for that? Part of that was saying we want to go further in community groups and it makes sense to not have a Wednesday evening Grace Family Ministry at this point in time. But I told you the big challenge in that was going to be what fills that space. So what has filled that space? Did you just find time for a little more Netflix? Did you maybe... Go find another Bible study where you can be taught? Or did you find ways that you can give? Because if you're going to prioritize relationships, it means that you have a focus on first being a giver. And if we're going to do that, what's filling that time? If you've just gone and found another Bible study to be a receiver and a recipient of, I think you might have missed the point. If you've just filled that void and that space with more Facebook or Netflix, I, I think you've missed the point. Let's just be honest, you've got to fight for those things. Because it's not what we're going to naturally be inclined towards, and it's not, what this, it's not what our adversary wants us to be a part of. We've got to fight for those things. And so Carrie and I are trying to find ourselves and our family fighting for relationships, and, and we've managed to have more people in our home this past fall than I think we've ever had in any fall, because we've got some time to do it. But I know full well that if we don't remain committed to that, it's not just going to happen. It takes us prioritizing it. It takes us putting it on the calendar. So what if in our lives we actively prioritized relationships over programs? And we first wanted to be givers and not takers. What if we gathered together having spent time preparing ourselves to build up others and asking God to use us to build up and encourage? So by that I mean what if through the week we've spent time with Jesus and in his word not just for ourselves but to be ready to build up others? And we come with this holy sense of expectation that's like, God, I don't know who you're going to use me to encourage this morning, and I don't know how you're going to use those scriptures that I just read this past week, but I'm ready. God, you just you point me towards the one you want me to share this with, and I'm going to be obedient to your spirit because I'm ready to be a giver, and when I gather, I want to give. I don't want this to be about me. I want this to be about the building up of the body, and so empower me to do that. Like, what if that was us? And what if we came together next Sunday and we kind of just all were tripping over each other because we all just wanted to give? What if next week you come having prepared yourself and pleaded with the Holy Spirit to use you to build up, encourage, 
and comfort just one person. It doesn't matter how old you are. What if the question was, was not, am I going to go have fun? What if the question was, who do I get to encourage? So I'm talking about specifically seeking out someone to pray with or pray for. Might be a prayer of rejoicing. Might be a prayer in the midst of, of grief. Might just be a prayer and just confidently reminding them that, you know what, that whatever's going on, God's got it. Now let's chat here. Because some of you are introverts, and I might have just made your palms sweaty. Don't be nervous. It's just one person. And it can be somebody you already know. But don't use that disposition of your personality as an excuse to not build up the body. God knows how he's made you. He knows how he's wired you. He knows how he's gifted you. And he's done all of that so that you can build up. Don't use your personality inclinations as an excuse to not seek someone out. Now those of us that are extroverts, we can't hide from what God wants to use us for because we're naturally engaged are naturally inclined to engage with everyone. By that I mean, I, I can at times walk into a room and kind of end up saying hi to everybody. And it, I mean, it's not just here. It can be kind of everywhere. And it's just a natural disposition. And I can think there's substance in that. When all I've really done is just smiled and waved or said hello to a whole bunch of people. And I can use the natural dispositions of my personalities, personality, I don't think I have many of them. I think it's just one. Tim, maybe you and I should talk about that at some point. I can use that to hide from actually engaging with someone. And quite frankly, as someone on the more extroverted side, I think the introverts actually have a better shot of pulling this off with substance and meaning than the extroverts do. Because you're a little bit more inclined to just kind of sit and soak. Where the extrovert's like, ooh, squirrel. Running around. What if that was us? What if that was us? And what if that's what we did? What if, what, what if what we wanted was not the creation of a prayer team, but just the equipping for us to be prayerful and the encouragement to go do it? See, God's called us this thing called building up the body, and he's gifted us to do that. And I believe that as we want to see more of God, it's going to be found in us being givers and not takers. I 
And if we find ourselves with a focus on taking, we've missed the point. We've missed the point of the gifts. We've missed the call of the body. And we've just completely undermined what Jesus himself did as not being one who came to be served, but came to serve. And what you and I are called and gifted to do ourselves. So for the second week in a row, we're not going to have a closing song. It'll probably be the first one next week. It would have been a good one too because it was oh for a thousand tongues to sing. Damien's like, hey, that would be clever. And I was like, that's a great idea. Because the song actually is a, is a prayer pleading with the Lord to give us the ability to sing your praise God calls and has gifted you and I to be builders, not takers, to be givers. And so there's your challenge for tomorrow and Tuesday and this entire week until we get to next Sunday. Pray for, prepare, and ask yourself, who can I encourage and pray for next week. And here's, here's what I'll tell you from personal experience, and then we'll, we'll just be done. I'm going to close my Bible, so just help me to be, be done. Here's what I'll tell you from personal experience. Like you're going to be real excited until about Thursday, and you're going to be a little nervous Thursday and Friday. And then on Saturday, like you might find yourself just kind of warring with yourself in your mind about, am I really going to do that? Will it really matter if I don't do that? And then Sunday morning, I will all but guarantee you, you will be tempted to not be here. Unless you have like a reason you have to come. Like Damien's got to be here. I can just tell you from personal experience, like that's, that's how this is going to go. Because the adversary doesn't want us doing this. And then when you get here, if you get here, you're going to see people and you're going to be like, ah, oh, no, no, not them. That, that wasn't the right, that's not the right person. And you're just going to find yourself tempted to just kind of pass away and off everybody. And I just say, lean in. It might be a really hard thing. Just lean in. But ask yourself, who can I pray for? Who can I encourage? Who can I build up? Jesus, we want to be those people. We want to be people that, that obey this mission you've given us to glorify you by being disciple-making disciples. We want to be these people that, that recognize you have, you have gifted us to obey this call that you've given us. And God, from, from the fifth graders in this room all the way up to those in the older ages of life, God, help us to be a body that places a high emphasis on being givers. And those that want to spend time with you, not just so that we can hear from you, but that we have something to give to somebody else. God, we pray that you'd glorify yourself in and through that. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.